comfort is always available in increasing quantities. And I think what we need to do is to really understand the dynamic of a good story and us as the main character and to recognize that you can't live a good story without risk. I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate in the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting, and I'm a best-selling author and the founder of The Right Practice. And I'm Alice Sudlow. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Right Practice and a StoryGrid certified editor. As always, today we're going to start by putting a character to the test. Alice and I look at a character in a book we're reading or film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from that character? Which character are we talking about today, Alice? We're going very Christmassy this week, and we're talking about Noel Kringle from the Disney film Noel, now available on Disney+. After that, we're talking to Seth Barnes. Seth is the leader of a large nonprofit and the author of a book about pilgrimage, Kingdom Journeys, Rediscovering the Lost Spiritual Discipline. Seth also happens to be my father-in-law, which is pretty fun. And in a book, in my book, Crowdsourcing Paris, he's the one who actually challenged me to add more adventure to the book project. It completely transformed my story and really the whole trip. And in this interview, we talk about some of Seth's biggest adventures, including a journey he took to Cambodia as a young man to work with refugees during the Cambodian genocide and his frequent hikes along the Camino del Santiago, the pilgrimage trail in Spain and France. At the end of our conversation, we talk about the nature of adventure and our need for risk in our lives so that we can live better stories. The last part of our show is our character study, where we ask what we can learn in our own lives as we try to live a better story. All right, Alice, it's time for the character test portion of our show. Today, we're examining Noelle Kringle from the film Noel now available on Disney's new streaming service, Disney+. Plus. This is your pick, Joe, because I have not subscribed to Disney+, Plus, so I haven't seen it. Is it worth it? So I, I would say that it is worth trying out. Uh, right now, The Mandalorian is on this new service, that Star Wars series, and it's actually really good. We might test that character a little bit later. And there's... This film, which I think is great, there's a bunch of other Disney films, so and it's also not very expensive. So I'm not a huge fan of having like 11 different streaming services that you're subscribed to, but I will say that this one's pretty good. I am very not a fan of having 11 different streaming services, but I'm also probably just a tiny grain of sand resisting a behemoth who has already won. Uh, I do feel, though, like I've gotten a good Mandalorian fix from all of the Baby Yoda memes on the well, internet. So 
that's all you need really to really yeah. get the full sense of the story that is that is what i figure i've experienced all of it with that being said uh since i have not experienced all of noel since there is no baby yoda to draw out of noel what is the synopsis <laughs> all right so noel is played by anna kendrick and she's the spoiled daughter of a santa claus dynasty and during the story sort of at the beginning of the story she actually ruins christmas by giving some really bad advice to her brother nick kringle it makes him flee the north pole and really his job as heir to the role of santa leaving the north pole and really the world with only their cousin gabriel kringle to be Santa Claus. And then th because of that, Noel becomes this social pariah. She's blamed for losing Santa by all the elves and her mother. And so she goes off to Phoenix to find her brother and save Christmas. And in the process, she really discovers who she really is. So why did you choose this character to test? Do you feel a lot of empathy for her maybe as the, the daughter of a Christmas Santa Claus family that kind of resonates with you? <laughs> I don't know about that, but it sounds kind of like a, you know, tried and true story, kind of a trite story. But I think Anna Kendrick is so good. The writing is really funny. I loved this film. I'm really a sucker for coming of age stories. I cried during Kung Fu Panda, if that says <laughs> anything about who I am as a human being. Perfect. But this was even more so. I think I cried through like the entire second half of the movie. It was a little bit intense. So what I'm hearing is if you, dear listener, were an emotional wreck from Kung Fu Panda, <laughs> then Noel might be too much for you. I wouldn't say too much, but it just right. Okay, perfect. So then let's put Noel Kringle to the test using our four criteria for an interesting character. Starting with her goal, does Noel have a goal? Yeah, so she does have a goal. Her goal at the beginning of the story is to be like her father, Chris Kringle, who she really loved. And I'm going to jump right into the next question, the challenge, because good characters have to overcome challenges as they try to accomplish that goal. And Noelle's first challenge was that her father didn't pick her to be Santa. She picked her brother to succeed him as Santa Claus, even though it's very clear that her brother was not that into it. He did not have the Christmas cheer that Noelle did. Um, so her first challenge was her father's misunderstanding of who she was and her potential. And instead of kind of cultivating her and her gifts, he told her that her role in the family was to really encourage her brother to make Christmas cards and to spread Christmas cheer. And so she tries to do that, uh, but it sort of ends up not working for everyone. Her brother makes a really bad Santa. And so she tries to encourage him and when she does that, she gives them this idea to run away to Phoenix. I mean, I don't know why she's not that great at spreading Christmas cheer when she is an excellent singer and the best way to spread Christmas, Christmas cheer is by singing loud for all to hear. <laughs> there are a lot of elf overtones in this film, I will say. So it, I, yeah, it's good. <laughs> okay, so that's her goal and her challenges. Does she make decisions? And can you point to any of her decisions? Yeah, so one of her early decisions was really to listen to her father, to choose to do her best, 
to spread Christmas cheer. But then after her brother runs away, her major early decision was to steal Santa's sleigh and go to Phoenix to convince her brother to come back. And that leads to a lot of shenanigans. Like I said, they are very <laughs> reminiscent of Elf. Uh, so if you enjoyed Elf, you will probably like this film. Uh, I won't get into all of those, but it's pretty funny. I just watched Elf a couple days ago again, so it's it's very much on the mind. Uh, is Anna Kendrick or is Noelle a character we can empathize with? Uh, so less so at the beginning. She starts out kind of spoiled. She has elf servants who do everything for her. And I think we kind of come around her, especially when she becomes this social outcast of the North Pole after kind of ruining Christmas. And I think we can see how when she was misunderstood by her family, she sort of got complacent and lazy. No one really expected anything from her. So she didn't give anything to you know, her culture, her society. But when she is given a challenge that really tests her, she rises to that challenge. And I think that's something we can empathize with. And that that kind of arc sounds like the arc of a good character. Yeah. So I would say uh, she passes the test. Cool. Although she potentially passes the test by following in the well-trodden footsteps of many other <laughs> Christmas movies. But well, that is the joy yeah, of Christmas movies, it is, isn't it? It is a tried and true formula, but it's done very well. That's the key. That is the key. Yeah. So last thing, what can we learn from Noelle? So this is a coming-of-age story about discovering your calling and your true potential. Uh, but one of the things I liked about it is that it shows us that just because you do discover your quote-unquote calling and your true potential, that doesn't mean it will be easy. Kind of a spoiler, which you probably <gasps> got already. Yeah, you can skip ahead if you really need to. But she does find her calling. No uh, way. But when she does, she also struggles at it. It doesn't go easy for her. She actually, she's actually really bad at it. But I think it also shows that there's something really great about struggling to accomplish the thing that you're made to do. It can be really hard and uncomfortable, but also can feel really invigorating. And when I was first trying to become a full-time writer, it was one of the hardest times in my life. I really struggled. But I also knew that I was struggling for a purpose. And while I didn't necessarily make it easier, that did make it worth it. And I'm so grateful, really, for going through that process. So I think the lesson is, if you found what your calling is, or if you're working at your dream, don't expect it to be easy. But also, compared to the alternative, I think you'll be living a much better story. That's solid. And that's actually a really great segue into our interview because Seth has a good bit of struggle in his story. Yeah, <laughs> Things don't come true. easy. So <laughs> with that said, let's get into our interview with Seth. All right. Welcome to the Character Test Show, Seth. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great. How are you doing? You know, it's a beautiful afternoon outside, and so my hopes are that uh, the day will be as good as it started. That's awesome. So no one can see. Right now we're talking over video, yeah. and you are standing at your treadmill desk. Are you currently walking I am not. as we're having this conversation? <laughs> not. No, not for this conversation. <laughs> Other conversations I would, but out of respect for you and your audience, no, I am not. <laughs> 
it would be very fitting if you were. Yeah. So I'd love to just begin with a section of your book, Kingdom Journeys, Rediscovering the Lost Spiritual Discipline. This is a book you wrote about pilgrimage and about travel as a spiritual practice. Yes. Um, Can you read that section from chapter one? Sure. Generations ago, we had the concept of pilgrimage, something that may have felt like an intense spiritual discipline. It was a journey to discover where God lives in the world. When people go on a pilgrimage to a holy shrine, they go to discover God. But in so doing, they find that God is not in the destination, but in the journey. So pilgrimage has become an important part of your life. One thing people may not know is that I am actually your son-in-law. So I've gotten to know you very well over the last 10 or so years. Uh, And before that, you were my mentor as well. So, you know, I've kind of watched you for the last several years go to Spain to hike the Camino del Santiago, which is this famous trail and pilgrimage site in Spain and France. Yeah. Uh, how many times have you been on it now? Gosh, it's five or six. I've lost track. Wow. So what is it about the Camino that you are drawn to? You know, it's funny. Growing up, my dad used to take me on backpacks to Wyoming. And uh, generally, I hated them. The packs were too heavy. I was, uh, you know, without actual food. It was like freeze-dried food and trout. And after a day or two, it was old. Yet the getting away for me was not as as big a deal as it's become. I think there's the need to get away from all the things in life that define you and all the things in life that sometimes trap you. And it's like, that's more important now than ever. And what I love about the Camino is having conversations either with God or with others is a lot easier on the Camino than, say, on the Appalachian Trail. On the Appalachian Trail, you're always looking at somebody else's butt as you're like hiking up the mountain, right? (laughs) But on the Camino, you can go side by side. The thing's wide enough. You can actually have a conversation alongside them, which is kind of how men tend to communicate best. We don't do so well looking across the table, you know, having coffee or whatever. You know, we, we like to talk side to side. So that's that's one thing. And then all the logistics that I hated in Wyoming with my dad are, are provided for. You've got places to sleep, got bunk beds, you know, in a hostel, you've got uh, places to stop and have uh, a drink or a croissant or whatever. And the, the scenery is beautiful and it changes and the culture, there's just so much, so many different things about the Camino that uh, you're always kind of discovering new elements of it. And, and for me, that's, mm. that's also fun. I love that, that you talked about, you know, how you can have these great conversations on the Camino. Can you think of a particularly interesting conversation that you had on the Camino? Yeah. Boy, there's so many. I I mean, that's the other thing I love is is to actually, you know, go with somebody and it's also about their journey. So I, a couple of conversations, one, one with, uh, it was like the very first day, very first time I ever met anybody new on the on the Camino and this guy was a Russian and he was hiking about four miles an hour I was like maybe three miles an hour so he's like whizzing by me we me and this other guy kind of speed it up so that we could have a conversation with him and he's just going so fast and like why are you here well you know I drink too much and my wife basically kicked me out of the house to, wow. to dry out <laughs> which is kind of fun. I mean, that's the other thing about the Camino is you, you just get, you go deep fast. Yeah. I mean, how, how often can you have that kind of a conversation within the first 10 minutes, you know, here in America? So 
uh, we're talking to him about that and about his kids and, you know, what life is like and what it means to like, he, he likes wine. And so he, how is that going for him? You know, and, and pretty soon, you know, we just can't keep up and he's going on and, you know, you, you stop every couple hours for a drink or just to get whatever. And so at the first watering hole, there he is. And he's in there probably 15 minutes or so. And he's seated at a cafe. And wouldn't you know, in front of him, as we pull up with our backpacks on, we're looking at him, there is a big bottle of wine on his table. <laughs> and it's nine o'clock in the morning. Oh and I'm gosh. like, oh, fail. <laughs> like, dude, you know, I just, uh, but I was also charmed by the fact that uh, this is like real life. Yeah. Another, another quick story I'll, I'll share is uh, of a young man that I mentored that uh, talked to me about his dreams. And he was saying, do I, you know, become an entrepreneur like I know I'm supposed to, or do I go to business school? Like Stanford, should I go to Stanford? Yeah. And uh, we talked and talked. And after a while, I said, you know, my recommendation is you've never failed at anything in your life. And Stanford's just going to be one more success for you, one easy thing. I think you should do the hard thing. I think you should go and you should start a business and, uh, and commit to that. Well, you know what? Right after he finished the Camino and finished our, you know, program that he was on, uh, he did start that business. And uh, that was like five years ago. And the business is now worth $30 million. Wow. He still hasn't failed. <laughs> He's still succeeding. I don't know. He needs more practice uh, at failure. Uh, or different yeah, practice. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you get people in the process of their stories, you know, yeah. and, and it's authentic. And uh, we miss that so much in America. Yeah. So you travel more than anyone I know personally. This year you've been to Spain, India, Central America, a bunch of other places I've forgotten. Uh, but one of your first travel experiences, or at least international travel experiences, was to Southeast Asia. And this was during the Cambodian genocide. Yeah. Can you talk about how you ended up there? Yeah. And, and first of all, how old were you? I was 20 at the time. And I'm trying to think, I guess I was 20. And I was a senior in college. And I uh, was at a point where I was ready just to have a good senior year. I was in love. Karen and I, you know, I was courting her and my classes looked pretty easy and um, it was a beautiful time of life. And then I read about what was happening on the other side of the world and I just, something rose up in me that said, this is wrong, this is terrible, I've got to do something. Like it rose up in me, you've got to do something. And that it's one thing to have the conviction and so many of us are, are great at kind of uh, feeling bad for things and and doing things on social media, but I felt like I had to go and I had no idea how to do that. But within two or three weeks, I was on a plane and I was going over there wow. and uh, it wasn't much of a plan and my parents initially weren't on it. They didn't, didn't support it, but uh, I just knew it had to happen. Can you connect the dots there between like <laughs> feeling that conviction yeah. and then actually being on a plane? Yeah. Like, did you, yeah. that was before Google. So like, how did you figure out how to get over there? Well, there was a uh, ministry, uh, and it's still around, and it's called Food for the Hungry International. Mm -hmm. And they had an opportunity that I found to go over uh, for three months and to live in a refugee camp and to uh, you know help refugees. There wasn't much of a structure and certainly not much orientation or finances that you'd have to raise support. So not only did I have to, uh, you know, if I was going to sign up for this, drop everything, but I also had to figure out how to get some support and to pay for it. 
And so I, I signed up. I actually uh, did not get the, I mean, like they turned me down. Like I, <laughs> there was something about me. I, I was too much vinegar in my veins, I think. And, and, but then, uh, I don't know, I was like on their second alternative and the other two people uh, didn't qualify either. And so they said, okay, are you interested? And I said, sure. And they said, can you go in two weeks? And so that's wow. how we got going. When I got to Bangkok, you know, everything was just so different and so exotic. And it, that was a whole nother set of stories. Wow. So this was during your senior year of college. Did you drop out of school to go to this or was it during summer break or how did that work? Yeah, it was just before Christmas. So it was in December and we were on a quarter system. So it was like going to be a spring quarter that was coming up. And my Professors either loved me or hated me, and I think the, the ones that had probably given a bad recommendation to the organization, you know, that, that was one thing. But I, I did have some professors that liked me, writing professor, a third world issues professor. I went to those guys and I said, you know, I, I, here's my, I feel compelled. Could you help me get together some independent studies? Oh, nice. And patch together, and they did. I got four, four different classes, and uh, they, they worked with me, and I was able to do the work while I was there and graduate on time. I had to test out of some other classes, but you know, God allowed me to do it. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So you land in Thailand. Yeah. And then you go up to this refugee camp. What happened there? Well, so they said, uh, you know, you've been an economics student. Could you run a, an economic development project? I said, what? And they said, well, raising pigs and chickens where we get like 300 chickens and a refugee. And if they can raise them, to maturity and sell them, then they get to keep the profit. And I said, absolutely. I'd never done anything like that. Animal husbandry, I had no idea. I'm just not a technical guy. But I said, absolutely. I said, what's the training? They said, you have four hours on the drive up there with the guy who understands how to do this. If you ask <laughs> questions, that's your training. I said, done. <laughs> and they said, one more thing, what? And I said, who will go with me? And they said, well, this girl from your school and you guys will live together and you'll ride on the motorcycle to the camp together. Do you know how to ride a motorcycle? I said, well, with the lesson, I can be okay. You know, it, the whole thing was very <laughs> sketchy. I took a bunch of notes and this girl and I lived in this place and we were a scandal very quickly. I mean, I not that I was attracted to her. We were just a scandal to all the villagers. Sure. And and she rode in on the motorcycle. And, uh, you know, the first time out, I crashed it. And my hands were all bloody. We showed up in the camp with bloody oh hands gosh. and just asking, where, where do we go? Where are the pigs and chickens? And kind of went from there. It was it was amazing. I, you know, I like a challenge. And this was a huge challenge. Yeah. Did the villagers end up with any chickens at the end of your stay there? You know, uh, we had to go to a town, two towns away to get a good price. And so we'd get all the chickens into a truck and cart them there and they'd weigh them. And it was, you know, a pretty big market. And that's, there was a time when uh, they discovered a whole bunch of new refugees that had just arrived on the border of Cambodia, couldn't get over into Thailand. And so they said, can you find a back way to get to them mm -hmm. with a bunch of chickens? Because they haven't eaten and they're starving. Wow. So I put like 200 chickens in the back of a truck with me and we drove all the way to this back roads place. Our colonel in the army was able to show us how to get back into Cambodia kind of illegally. And we handed out these chickens, which by the time we arrived there had, had died and suffocated. Oh. It was kind of a gruesome thing, but, you know, kind of pioneered a new way into Cambodia. And hmm. uh, a week later, 
like all the NGOs and the UN and Red Cross were kind of using that path into Cambodia. And I learned some interesting things about doing NGO work at that point. Wow. So you trailblazed this thing for other NGOs to get in to Cambodia. I had no idea I was trailblazing. I was just a guy with chickens going across a road. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So would you call that experience an adventure? And and how how do you define adventure? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I worked for this organization that 30 years ago I named Adventures in Missions. And I've often thought, what does that mean? An adventure for me is something that entails risk. That is oftentimes unexplored territory. Like you, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Like it could turn out bad. Hmm. And that's part of, you know, a good story has got suspense in it. I don't care if it's a good romance or thriller. You want to know that there's suspense in it. And for me, you know, going to Cambodia, there was a lot of suspense. I, there's so many things that you didn't know the answer to, and that made it a better story. Yeah. So was, I mean, did it turn out bad? Were there parts of it that turned out bad? Yeah, it could have, or it could have turned out bad. I mean, we got there initially, and uh, within a day, we realized there's like a, a plague of flies here. Mm. And I, you know, again, I'm not an agriculture guy. I didn't understand, like, even I know biology, you know, but I, where were these flies coming from? And so we, we traced it back to, uh, you know, like, the, the pig dung was emptying out into just a big old cesspool, mm. and the flies were like congregating there. It was horrible. And we had to figure out how to uh, get rid of the fly problem by getting rid of the, of all the, the pig dung. And so we, we did two or three things that failed. And eventually uh, what it took was for the refugees to actually get in the cesspool and muck it out. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, up to their knees. Okay. So it wasn't like they're sw swimming in it, you know, but it was it was bad. And, and these guys were so brave. And I really learned about what courage looks mm. like just watching these guys that had made it, you know, who knows what hell they'd gone through to yeah. that point, seeing their families die. And so they were willing to do anything just to survive. Mm. So that was one, you know, that's, that's one thing that was, yeah, failure was in there, but ultimately success. When we needed to expand the, the project, we needed bamboo. So there just wasn't bamboo for sale. So we went about three hours to a bamboo forest with all these refugees and cut down all kinds of bamboo that we put in the truck and brought it back and built these chicken houses and tripled the chicken project, you know, just by kind of being innovative. Wow. But then we put the chicken houses too close to like, uh, I don't know, your, your one month chicken and your two month chicken need to be separated. The, the one month chicken is more susceptible. Mm. We didn't follow all those protocols. And so they died. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so there there was some failure. And when I got back, you know, I'm I'm like I'm ready for more travel, but uh Karen was not. She's like, "Okay, if you travel more, I may not be here when you're gone." So that would have been a failure had I not said, "Okay, I'm going to regroup," <laughs> and I decided to propose. So it, it, always there's this nice edge of it could be too far or it could be just awesome because you went just far enough. Yeah. Wow. This episode is brought to you by The Right Practice Pro. The Right Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing, get feedback on it, and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award-winning books, 
short stories or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award-winning writer, you should too. The Write Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book, novel, short story, or poem, or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing. If you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in. And the Write Practice Pro is the best place to get it. You can sign up for the Write Practice Pro at therightpractice.com slash join. I want to read this one section of my book, Crowdsourcing Paris. Yep. And this is a place where you make a very important appearance. All right. So this is from chapter one. And some context for this. At this point, Tali and I had already, you know, decided to go to Paris. We were actually living in your basement for like a month so we could save a little bit of money to go on this trip. We had let go of our apartment, put everything we had, either sold it or put it in storage. And we were, you know, getting ready to go. And I was thinking about this book project that I was going to work on. And so this is from chapter one. I was walking around my in-laws farm brainstorming for my book project when I ran into Seth, my father-in-law. That's you. (laughs) I was thinking about your book, he said. "Uh Uh-oh. I thought, here comes an idea. Seth is an idea guy. He walks on his treadmill all day, and that's what you're walking on right now or standing at at least, thinking up ideas and emailing them to people. He's written a couple of books, and many of his ideas are brilliant for someone not necessarily for me. What your book needs is more adventure, he said. You need to have a whole series of adventures. Adventures? What do you mean? The problem is Paris isn't adventurous enough. Has great food and great ambiance, but ambiance doesn't make a great story. Maybe you interview 10 people on the street or, you know, there were those riots and car burnings a few years ago. You could go to that neighborhood and interview people about what happened. It sounded horrible to me. Mm All I wanted was ambiance. I wanted cafes. I wanted to soak in the artistic atmosphere. I wanted cheap French wine and museums and bookstores. I wanted to live the writer's life in Paris. I did not want to talk to random strangers every day. And I definitely did not want to interview Islamists in a slummy neighborhood 40 minutes away from the city center. I didn't tell that to Seth, of course. Wow, yeah, that's a really good idea, I said. I kind of feel like just going to Paris with a baby will be adventurous enough, though, don't you? He just grunted and went back to his pacing. And so I eventually did take your advice, but it took me a while. Do you remember that conversation? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was clear to me, but, you know, yeah, it it took a took a while and you, you don't want to like hammer somebody over the head like you need to do this. <laughs> I just know what I like to read and I, I like to know that I can't guess the ending. Like, mm. I don't know what's going to happen. And so how do you make that happen when it's kind of contrived? It, it seemed to me like there needed to be some element of surprise. Mm. Yeah. And risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think most people avoid adventure? Yeah. And and what is it about adventure that's so important to us and our growth? You know, what a great subject. As I get older, the opportunity to become more comfortable seems to be before me every day. And, uh, you know, kids have grown up. Uh, obviously, we, we get to partake in 
the joy of seeing your kids, our grandkids, and uh, you know, vicariously, we we see that, but we're not responsible like you're responsible. There's so many ways that we're just not at risk anymore, and yet it's this tension between comfort and risk that it's the spice of life. Uh, without it, I see so many older people who are just not living a very good life anymore. They maybe once had a great life, but all the spice has gone out of it. They're going, you know, their biggest deal in a given week is, you know, how can they lower their golf score or what new recipe or can I go shopping or whatever the issue is. It's just not a good story anymore. And in America, the richest country in the world, we've just got so much that we can feather our beds with and comfort is always available in increasing quantities. And I think what we need to, to do is to really understand the dynamic of a good story and us as the main character and to recognize that you can't live a good story without risk. It's just an element. It's a paradigm that we have to wrestle with and live in the tension of. Yeah, I love that. I mean, this is a subject that this podcast is really about, you know, living a better story. We are yeah. characters right. in the story of our lives. So how can people add adventure to their lives? How can they add more risk in a way that is, you know, I mean, we're not talking about like risking death here, or maybe we are, but like, how can people add risk to their normal everyday lives? Yeah, understanding that there, it's kind of comfort on, the, on a continuum and risk on the other end of the continuum is helpful because if you don't see the trade-off between that, you could just go all the way to, over to one side of the continuum and not recognize that there's a tension. Hmm. And that's kind of one thing. It's, that's like a paradigm. And then the second thing is accountability. Like I'm always talking to, you know, my friends and those who kind of appreciate this tension and can help me when I maybe am too comfortable hmm. and challenge me. Hey, maybe it's time for, you know, another adventure, another challenge or another you know, what is God asking you to do? And, and those kinds of challenges keep me on the edge. And my internal commitment is ultimately, I, I don't want to die in a place of not having embraced challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately, I'd love to be able to have emptied my bank accounts and to have done all that God maybe had assigned me to do and to be aware at least of what those assignments are. So hmm. as I, I get older, that's, those are the things that I'm using to try and walk into a, a gray space that feels very precarious sometimes. What's an adventure that you've been on lately? Oh man, when I go to India, it's always that because just getting there is an arduous thing. And this last time, I remember you know, getting on the plane and I'd been fasting, a Daniel fast for 21 days, and I was right. For people who don't know a what a Daniel fast, it's when you give up everything but vegetables, right? Yeah, pretty and much. And water. Right. I was like, Lord, what is it? You know, and, and uh, part of the answer that he had for me was going to India. And in India, oh, I needed to have a medical procedure. I was able to go and get that done with a doctor I didn't know and meet him and the whole thing for a tenth of the cost in, in America in an afternoon when I had, you know, I had four hours available. So that was just a little bitty adventure, but kind of, you know, some things that otherwise wouldn't have happened. But the, the real adventure was going out to the hinterlands and seeing these heroes 
that are bringing freedom to people in, in villages, you know, just amazing miracles and the dead being raised and to be a part of something so much bigger than myself was a, a huge privilege. And, you know, you, you never know. I, when you put yourself in liminal space like that, you can meet all kinds of people all along the way. I remember coming from Dubai to Hyderabad and I, it was two o'clock at night and I'm sitting next to a guy who is building like the, the biggest healthcare startup in India. It's called Call Health. And he told me all about it. And it's uh, worth uh, $250 million four years on. And he said, why don't you come and, and visit me tomorrow? And I'll introduce you to my management team. And so uh, I went and, uh, and met that guy. And I, and I had an, you know, another adventure that I never had scheduled. So there's adventures maybe you schedule and then those that show up that you're available for. Hmm. Wow. You mentioned liminal space, which is a concept that I've loved for years and I think you introduced me to. But can for those who don't know, can you talk about what liminal space is? Yeah, and I, I'm no big expert, but there's this notion that subliminal is below the conscious level. And the things that are in, in liminal space are conscious. They, you're bringing to a conscious level your actions that you might otherwise do unconsciously. So I, you know, typically get up and I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to do my morning routine. Those are all kind of subliminal things. But let's say I'm like ready to be interrupted. You called me today and said, hey, how about this podcast? And I said, yes. Well, I didn't do that. That was in liminal space. I was available mm. to be interrupted and I'm just kind of living in the now. Hmm. And that's that's what liminal space is for me. It's taking those things that used to be maybe automatic and making them a conscious choice. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of liminal space. One of the things that I've read that makes me really excited about this space. I mean, initiation has always been part of liminal space. Um, a lot of faith and religious practices are in liminal space. But it's really the place of transformation, like when we are in that liminal space, which is in between two kind of normal spaces. It's this kind of separate thing. Yeah. That's the place where we can be transformed and we can yeah. really grow. And it seems to me like adventure and journey and pilgrimage and, and the Camino that you're talking about are these kind of places of liminal space right. that most of us don't really have as part of our lives, you know? Right. right. We sort of avoid those kind of spaces. So uh, it seems like introducing those liminal spaces into our lives uh, is really valuable. Yeah, I think so many of us are sleepwalking through our lives. We're sleepwalking right past the opportunities that are available to us. I mean, I, and it happens to me. I'm not like putting myself above anybody. I have to constantly kind of introduce the self-talk. I remember going to the airport a while back and I'm, I'm just at seven or eight o'clock in the morning, you know, having avoided traffic. Uh, I'm, I'm going in and I'm sleepwalking basically. And uh, some limousine driver pulls in next to me as I'm walking and walks alongside me and says, how are you doing this morning? I say, I'm fine. And he says, are you awake? Are you really living? Have you really taken a big breath today? I'm like, what? Who are you? Why are you asking me all this stuff? <laughs> and he's going, do you know what it is to fully breathe? You know, he's just challenging me. And like, mm. we need to, we need to do things consciously. We need to do things. And he asked me what, you know, what are you going to do today? And I said, well, I'm, 
flying to Philadelphia. I'm going to the inner city. In fact, uh, I'll probably be picked up by a guy who's got a, a hole in his car where a bullet went through and so it's new. And he said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> we had this awesome conversation just walking along because like I was available to be interrupted. Mm. Were you more conscious after like, did you go get on your, on your flight and like take some deep breaths? Absolutely. I actually, uh, I did. And I actually kind of wrote up a, I don't know, a blog or a story about, cause I wanted to record that. I wanted to, yeah, how do I memorialize this guy in this conversation? All right. So last question, what is a favorite character of yours from a book or film? Hmm. So many, and there's so many that are maybe kind of trite and hackneyed, but I, I love, I was reading about, you know, David in the Bible today and, and how David would just after victories, he'd like dance before the Lord and he's dancing at the front of parades. And I'm like, what kind of leader is this? I can never be that kind of leader in literature. I think a guy like that was maybe Aragorn who hmm. was, you know, in hiding in a way, um, he was Strider. But he was also the king, and he was regal, but he was a fighter. And I, I love that concept of a person of great authority who's not so high and mighty that he won't get down in the mud and fight. I love characters that are available to be human and to do what other people normally do and to not lord it over those that they might have authority over. To muck out the pigsty. Ah, there's that too. Yes. <laughs> I've, been, I've had those moments in my life. Well, thank you so much, Seth. This has been really fun. And uh, we'll be thinking about that. Your book is called Kingdom Journeys, Rediscovering the Lost Spiritual Discipline. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you. All right. Let's get into our character study segment of the show. This is where we ask what we can learn from Seth's story and apply to our own lives as we try to live a better story. All right, Alice, what was your takeaway? I really liked how he framed this concept of a spectrum between comfort and risk and how there's attention to these two things that they're on either sides of a spectrum. And both of them are good things and both of them pose some challenges. And so the question is, if you think about it as a spectrum, you can see where you're trading off one for the other, where you're trading off risk in favor of comfort, or where you're trading off comfort in favor of risk, which is mostly a helpful tool for me to think about. At what point am I maybe veering too far to one side or the other? At what point do I want to recalibrate in some areas this balance of tension between comfort and risk? Because he makes a really good point that risk is the, or the tension between comfort and risk is the spice of life. And risk is really key to living an, a good life and an interesting story. But at the same time, there's also real value to comfort. So it's a question mm. of figuring out where yeah. on that balance is the appropriate balance at any given time. Yeah. Yeah, I think what that made me think of is just how important risk is to a great story and living a great story and comfortable stories don't really make for very good stories. As a book editor who has read a lot of writers kicking things off with comfortable <laughs> stories, I can tell you they do not. Yeah. And if we want to live good stories, we need to be open to some level of risk, I yes. think. Yes. I. That's definitely true. And it's something that I think some people gravitate towards more easily sure. and some people do not. And I think it's area specific. Mm -hmm. in, uh, like, like someone might be 
might love roller coasters or bungee jumping, but might not want to take financial risks right. necessarily. Like it's it's also kind of that arena specific, yeah. but being aware of, of where to push yourself in risk at any given time, I think is a good thing to, to keep in mind. Yeah. And I think you made a good point about you don't have to make stupid risks. Right. You know, you can make calculated risks in the right ways to improve your life, not stupid risks to ruin your life. Right. Like you can put the bungee jumping cord on before you leap off. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. What was your takeaway? Yeah, I, I had so many, but I, I think I just love that idea of liminal space and how, you know, it is through that taking of risk and, and going on an adventure that we grow. And I think good stories are often about characters who grow and, and, you know, I want to be growing. I want to be becoming a better person. Uh, I want to be expanding my life and my influence and how much I can help people and uh, how much I know and uh, all of these things. And I can't do that if I'm just pursuing comfort. I have to be taking risks. And so being intentional about choosing where to take risks and where to, you know, allow yourself to be comfortable. I think that's, you know, it's just a great idea to just have a risk assessment on your life, you know, to look at your life and say, hey, where am I being too comfortable? Or, and where do I need to take some risk so that I can grow in that area? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that it is, like you're saying, like it's area specific and allowing yourself to have areas of comfort that then allow you to take greater risks yeah, in other areas. Totally. So yeah, I think it's really a challenging, but also an exciting reminder yeah. about the value of risk. Right. So that is our character test challenge for this week. What is an area in your life that you're comfortable right now? Maybe too comfortable. Maybe it's your work, your family life. Maybe it's a relationship with friends. First, acknowledge that area in your life. And then think of ways that you can introduce some level of risk. And then finally, take a risk. Create an adventure and see it, how it affects that area of your life. And let us know how it goes by sending us an email at charactertestshow at gmail.com so we can hear how it went for you. All right, that's it. That's our show. Thanks to Pictures of the Floating World for our theme music. Have a great week, everyone. And please do us one last favor. Go to your podcast player or whatever button you need to press to leave a re review. Press that button and then write a review. It can be as short as one sentence and click submit. It will take you 30 seconds to leave a review, but it'll be a huge help to us. Thank you so much and have a great week.